Hello and welcome to Transformation and Transcendence Roundtable podcast. We discuss all things uh, spiritual and uh, spiritual and emotional growth oriented. Uh, today we have, so far at least, um, Ben Bennett Carpenter, uh, a life coach. Uh, hi, Ben. Hi there, Dr. Sellers. <laughs> and Leah Dickinson, a life coach and psychotherapist. Hello. Hey. And so Farid Elazabah and Joshua Morrow may be joining in. Uh, I would think they will. Something must have kept them. All right, so I thought we would talk today about claiming our total capacity for greatness. So um, to frame it, you know, why don't we all have this capacity for greatness? Why don't we all sort of like exhibit it? Why doesn't it ooze out of us? Why doesn't it spring forward all the time? Well, to the extent that we can let go of our ego and surrender it to our higher self or universal self, it can. But when we're egoistically oriented, uh, it keeps us focused on the self. And um, there's a sense of then things not being given out for life, like as a chain, link in the chain of life. Right? So as we begin to uh, learn to uh, accept ourselves as we are, accept our humanness, accept our, um, our faults, which is the shadow elements of us, recognize this without beating ourselves up and beginning to uh, enlist the higher self as a guide to um, bringing forth the best in ourselves, or really which is the best in ourselves, but as a way to induce that, you know, as we surrender to it, the self-interest and the other interests become one and we become the link in the chain of life. And we begin to have the sense that as we give to life, we're giving to ourselves. As we give to ourselves, we're giving to life. So we overcome this conflict of this duality of what I do, I'm doing for my self-interest or my vanity or my own kind of, um, you know, kind of small world as it is kind of in competition with the bigger world, the world of us and them and otherness and myself. And so as that begins to, falter it goes as it begins to go away we have this greater sense that what we are doing is a giving and it feels um, like we're very deserving we deserve the best in life and we also are not afraid then to give the best in life and it's a positive cycle of giving the best we have in life to life and receiving, feeling like we can receive the best in life. So greatness of any form, you know, our uniqueness, our own particular template of our gifts and our, our own brilliances, our own uh, passions and compassions, our own uh, capacity for joy as a cup running over, doesn't feel like um, it's going to hurt anyone else. It's going to be for the good. And the greatness begins to find an easy path, an easy grease track to emerge, right, in our life. And as we, we move forward in life uh, and have this attitude about giving as a link in the chain of life, uh, it all becomes easy and starts to happen rather organically over time. A couple of things to go a little bit further. You know, if you're spiritual bypassing, if you're if you're suppressing, repressing 
these elements in our own vanity, our own uh, self-servingness, our own egotism, uh, and you don't sort of own that and be, put it on the table for yourself. You don't have to get by all this. It doesn't have to all be fixed and cured, etc. But if you're not sort of allowing yourself to recognize that you have these faults, which are, which is your shadow, right? Part of your shadow, uh, then uh, it, it corrupts what you're doing. It, it causes an inhibition. It causes a sense that uh, this is a, uh, this is not safe because it's really used to triumph over other in some ways, you know, instead of just being for others as well as ourselves. So there's that creates this inhibition, this holding back, anxiety, because you feel like you may be doing something wrong, even though it may look right, you have a deeper sense it's not quite right. And you also fear that like you feel that if you're trying to do all this stuff to uh, for your own self-interest, your own self-serving quality at some level that you're not recognizing, you're going to feel other people are going to be mad at you for that. Like we, when we war with other people with our self-servingness, that we feel, uh, you know, uh, angry at them or judgmental of them or contemptuous of them. That's the negative cycle that we have to look at. So we have to accept our humanness. We have to accept our shadow elements our self-servingness, our self-selfishness, and begin to see, uh, as we put this on the table, that this is our humanness, but we challenge it, we detoxify it by recognizing it, and we say to ourselves things like, well, I do have these feelings. Uh, I intend to, as I go forward, to try to let this go, to try to give myself to God's will or life's will, you know, to be the best person I can, not just for myself, but to overcome the duality of me versus the other, and give this out to life, and then, then we're on track. We're on the track. Um, let's see. Another element to this, which we're talking about, your shadow, is I think it's important to recognize, and when we're trying to claim our capacity for greatness, that the shadow and its elements in darkness is really a distortion of the positive. There aren't two fundamental uh, forces in the universe darkness and light, love and hate. Hate is a distortion of love. Um, meanness is maybe a distortion of self-assertiveness. Um, you know, pride is perhaps a distortion of self-esteem and self-worth that's gone bad and is in comparison to others rather than just kind of a standalone kind of feeling you feel good about yourself and what you feel good about in yourself, you're willing to give to others. So the shadow, the lower self, the negativities that we have, that we don't want a spiritual bypass, because if you do, you, you can't really claim your capacity for greatness. You may rise above other people and begin to defeat them, but it will have this roaring value to it, and it will fall. It will fall and uh, will end up uh, in worse place than when we started in some sense, which is in some sense what needs to happen for us to transform. That's why, again, when you're on a path where you're trying to uh, go from the dualistic place uh, a state to the unitive state, and you expect that troubles will come. And when they come, they're signposts and teachers for things like this. How do I get back on track to being this link in the chain of life rather than a self-serving person who's trying to do this for other people. For example, you know, you're saying in some way deep down when you're in your lower self or your shadow, you're saying, hey, I, uh, recognize me. I'm better than you. Love me for it. 
Well, that's really kind of kooky if you think about it, right? I mean, people aren't going to love you because you say, recognize me, I'm better than you. They're probably going to feel bad about themselves. And they're probably going to say, well, I don't like that. And I don't like you saying that. And so, but when we have that kind of deeper attitude, this is the kind of dynamic and the negative cycle we create. However, then, you know, however, then it starts, it creates reactivity, feedback loops that become negative and uh, problems occur, right? Problems occur. Among them are guilt for having good things in life. Unconscious guilt, a climate inside of us where we feel it's not safe to have good things, and so on. So we can't claim our capacity for greatness. <clears throat> okay, um, so important to note that we don't have to have all this fixed. And, and don't suppress your self-servingness or your selfishness or your one-upmanship that we may have, right? Don't suppress that. But uh, rec recognize it paradoxically, bring it out, put it on the table, and say, I, I want to improve that going forward. I don't have to beat myself up. This doesn't make me horrible. This makes me a human, a human person with our own faults, right? Your own shadow. This is the beginning of shadow work, right? You want to work on it. You want to transform it. You don't transform it by bypassing it and repressing it and forgetting about it and sweeping it under the rug. It doesn't work that way. It won't go away. It'll just get you in the end. Or in the beginning, you can't get out of square one, right? You can't get off the blocks when you got too much of that. And sometimes you get off the blocks and then you fall back because this is what's happening. Okay, and recognize the negative is always a distortion of the positive. So as you do your work, you work back towards the core self, towards the universal self, towards love, and all its derivatives in the positive sense, right? Rather than in the distortions. That's, that's the work. We use, you know, we challenge our cognitive distortions, we challenge our attitudes, we accept and detoxify our negative attitudes in the transformation process to liberate this core self with its greatness. Okay. Now that's a lot. I can say more, uh, but you know, again, if I wax on too much, it, it's you know, the, the message is going to get obscured by the verbiage rather than you know, the, kind of the essence of it. So I'll stop here. Well, I have a question for you, Dr. Sellers, and the rest of the people in the chat. Uh, this is Fareed, by the way, because I didn't uh, join in the beginning. Yes, I Fareed, yeah. Yes. Um, whenever I <clears throat> something that a uh, client or I may think about or feel, I'm always wondering about the cultural context that contributed to our feeling in that way. So when we consider what you're talking about, Dr. Sellers, that some people need a reminder that these shadow elements as you put them are just a normal part of the human experience and um, are distortions of actually positive benign parts of ourselves what i'm wondering is what are the cultural messages and ideas that have led us to be separated from that truth because i think it is a truth and i think that the underlying message you're saying dr sellers is by recognizing that truth we can help ourselves to develop ourselves and move through certain conflicts. But I guess just the question I have is like, where did we get the idea that it wasn't part of being human, that um, these parts of ourselves ought to be uh, ignored and cast off and 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 criticized? Um, uh, again, keeping in mind that what you're talking about is a truth, uh, not just a spiritual truth, but an emotional truth, a psychological truth. I'm just wondering what the, the group feels about that in terms of where 
in a sense, where did we go wrong? Where where did we where did we get separated from this um, from this helpful truth? Very good. Uh, hi, Josh. I also wasn't here at the beginning. Yeah, hi, Joshua. Um, I told everybody you guys would be coming, so they were waiting for you. Ah, <laughs> uh, perfect. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so, I think. If in my mind, what comes up is shame. Just the 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 Jungian perspective of the shadow is that it's the repressed parts of ourselves that weren't able to be accepted by the culture around us, and so that the the shadow is uh, in some sense a collective entity because we have a cultural milieu, and then everyone sort of agrees on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and the things that are not acceptable are shamed and repressed internally as children or as young individuals and then we've internalized that so then we repress it in ourselves as well and um i think that at uh, maybe it's just because my own study is looking into investigating shame right now that um i think that that's a piece of the puzzle, an important piece of the puzzle. Yes, absolutely. And, and some of it is cultural in the sense that some cultural kind of institutions and ways of looking at the world, with what we call the superego, right, uh, have this idea that, you know, if you just push it down, push it out of sight, that's fine and that's good, right? But I think as psychologists and psychotherapists, we understand not really it continues to cause problems and low self-esteem and depression and anxiety and mental illness and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the, the better way is to feel a shame if we have it for having some traits like this and, and um, accept ourselves while we engage in the process of trying to transform it over time, trying to heal it, trying to redeem ourselves from it by not judging and beating yourself up and pushing it down, but you know, trying to be different and trying to feel our feelings in a way and see what positive feelings may be under the distortions of the negative ones. And just asking for uh, our own inner guidance to sort of guide us through to find more benevolent kinds of uh, feelings inherent within judgments and, uh, you know, vanity and selfishness and things like that, which may be, again, why I try to talk about um, some of the, the divine kind of elements that may be in distortion, like uh, selfishness may be self-protection or self-esteem that's going awry, right? And it's turned into something other, uh, which happens, again, also because of trauma in this lifetime, at least, right? Trauma, psychic injury, childhood wounds, as well as the institutional or educational kinds of environment that we have, which says, don't feel your bad feelings, don't feel your angry feelings, don't feel your shadow, whatever, your, all this, the negativity, just forget about it, push it down. Now, maybe at times in life, there's moments when that's true, but moreover, you don't want to live your life like that. Then you're in what we call the mask or the persona, the false self, and you have this kind of anxiety that you carry with, if everybody really finds out who I really am, they're not going to like me either. And I don't like myself because that's who I think I really am too, rather than those faults are a distortion of positive based on injuries, right? Based on psychic injury, pains, 
perhaps even genetic vulnerabilities that we've you know come into the world with. If we want to go further, we can talk about it in terms of you know encoding processes and stuff. But I'll leave that alone for right now. You know that we are brought in to uh, and come with a desire to change certain things, and uh, and and sometimes it, you know it shows up and, and hurts and even. Um, you know, experiences that we have that are designed in some sense to bring out uh, faults and character issues that we need to improve on. Not because we're being punished even, right? But because the, the, the trend or the, the, the arc is towards liberation of your core self or your higher self. And without some of these awarenesses from pains and injuries, you don't get there sometimes at least. So I think a question that comes to my mind then is for like listeners, what would be a helpful way for them to better conceptualize this and actually put this into practice? This idea, you know, of like allowing yourself to um, move into some of these feelings that you've been experiencing. Like for instance, like I've had clients who have dealt with a lot of guilt for like things that they did in their past and they just cannot um, get past it and accept that they made a mistake and begin to, you know, work towards doing things differently. So like Dr. Sellers or anybody else, if that was, you know, somebody that was coming in for coaching, for instance, or a client, you know, how would we help them conceptualize to start practicing the working through within that experience? I think somehow that the first step is for them to recognize what's different about the environment they're in when they're with us. Because Josh mentioned shame, and I want to emphasize that there can be good social reasons for shame. I won't bring them up because they might be a bit scandalous, but obviously there are things I could mention that would warrant shame and where shame would actually be the appropriate social sanction. I think of shame as a kind of a social mechanism to keep certain behaviors in line and there are some things that the social mechanism are outdated, and that's why we talk about not shaming them. Um, but there are other things that are still within the purview of that kind of social mechanism. And let's let me just put it this way: there are some things we want to shame. There are some things that it's it's good to shame. But in the therapeutic or the coaching space, I think what people have to recognize is that space is not just a recapitulation of society. In a way, it's outside of society because the general conventions don't apply. And I think the most simple example of that is the fact that people are are encouraged to free associate. If I free associated when I was getting coffee with a friend, they would immediately call me a madman and they would never <laughs> want to work with me again. Uh, but in the therapeutic or the coaching situation, you have free reign, go ahead. The minute something comes to your mind, go ahead. I don't care if it's a tangent, I don't care if it's even rem not remotely related to what, um, to what you just said because the important thing is letting emerge whatever emerges. So to answer your question, Leah, I think really the first step is for people to recognize when they develop that relationship with us, yes, there are parts of it that are like a social relationship insofar as it's a dialogue, insofar as we're going to uh, adhere to certain social niceties and pleasant pleasantries, um, but ultimately this is a space outside. So, So really I think practically what that means is I don't want you to assume that I'm going to feel a certain way or have certain judgments about whatever you're sharing, whatever is evoking the guilt, whatever past experiences you had. I don't want you to think that I am a stand-in for society with a capital S. I want you to know that in this relationship and in this space, 
we are in a sense outside of society in so far as I'm going to hear you out, I'm going to really listen to you deeply, I'm not going to apply the general rules of society that would otherwise shame you or make you feel bad or uh, contribute to the sense of guilt that you have. So I think that's that's uh, one of the important things in answering your question, Leah, is just giving them that sense of this is this is a very special uh, sacred uh, space where you, you have the opportunity to work through those things. Yeah, if I could uh, piggyback on that, Fareed, because you've, you've kind of already summed it up, but um, I go back to some of the basics of just remembering what it's like, I guess when I, when I first went into therapy years ago, and I, I forget that I was so shocked by the non-judgmental um, non-evaluative, you might say, environment. Um, and I think maybe some of us, I definitely uh, forget from time to time that some of some clients coming in or, or people who maybe haven't come into therapy or coaching, um, if they've experienced a very heavy shame environment or are experiencing lots of guilt, um, one of the thing, things that immediately can be different is when they walk in and they start not experiencing that from you, Leah, or from any of us. Because <laughs> um, uh, we kind of take that for granted that it's a, that we're, we, we bracket so much of that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop, stop there. I know there's, there's lots more things to, to pursue here. Yeah. I love that term, Ben, non-evaluative space, because you're right. I think people, especially in our day and age, and I think, forgive me for saying our society, you know, it's a very cliche, what kind of society we live in, modern day society. Um, but we do live in like a hyper-evaluative space, I feel. Um, just to give you an example of that, last year I had a client really educate me because they were telling me, you know, they had some social anxieties and, and they were telling me, you know, they're, they're worried that at the gym, somebody's gonna film them and like kind of make fun of them. And I thought to myself, like a typical CBT trained person, like, okay, this is a this is a dysfunctional thought. This is probably not weird in reality. And so I was kind of pushing back. Lo and behold, he showed me a video, of like apparently it's an entire genre on TikTok of like people who are doing exactly that. And people who, you know, apparently don't feel ashamed of like actually filming people and, you know, commentating and whatever. And so, you know, in that moment, I realized like, okay, maybe maybe society is a bit more evaluative and, and judgmental than even I know, just because of the advent of, of things like TikTok. Um, and so imagine imagine what kind of evaluation and, and gaze that that client is dealing with uh, in, in, their, in their personal life. And then to come into the therapy, therapy space or coaching space, as you said, Ben, non-evaluative. Um, and so just kind of thinking out loud, I'm, I'm thinking, how can I emphasize that, right? Because of course, it's one thing to say maybe in the intake or the first session, like this is a, a non-judgmental space, non-evaluative. But I do feel, and I'll be curious what you guys think about this, there are certain things that we can do maybe from session to session or certain like micro interventions that we can make to really bring that point home. Because you're right, Ben, they're, they're, they're going from such a, like a hyper-evaluative society, I, I truly feel that we live in, versus now this kind of open, non-evaluative space. So I just want to know what are some ways that I can really convey that point so they feel as open as possible to, to work through some of the things that they want to. Well, 
I'm sure everyone has thoughts on that. My, you know, my hunch for it is that you already do that. <laughs> you probably, you're either being uh, very humble or uh, anyway, I, my hunch is that you already communicate that uh, non-judgmentalness and, and so on already. But so, I mean, that's one thing that I would say is there's sort of like, there's that pat the passive response, which is just, it's already there. You already have created that environment. So there's no more work that needs to be done with that, I guess. But on the other hand, I'd, I'd say, you know, every once in a while, I will find that I feel the need in a, a session to, to, to actually say something about it, especially if the client is just returning very heavily to, I think that they think that I'm judging them or that they that they're experiencing shame from me or something like that i will sometimes feel the need to just explicitly address that um uh, but one thing i just want to mention also is that as we're talking about evaluative and non-evaluative sort of like spaces i think this is in a roundabout way getting a, it is connected to our theme of greatness because you know greatness is sort of like an evaluation or at least one version of it is like um you know are things bad? Are they okay? Are they good? Are they great? You know, one version of that is sort of this evaluative scale. Um, but, uh, and of course, I think there could be different versions of greatness, but I'm just throwing that back in because I think we're, 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 uh, we're talking in a roundabout way. We are also talking about this issue of, uh, of greatness or not, not greatness. And, and Ben, I can't help myself with some wordplay. Greatness as gradeness. You're grading on a scale. That's right. There you go. <laughs> uh, I'd like to pop in um, and return to Leah um, to the guilt thing. And Brene Brown said that I learned from her this distinction between guilt and shame. Shame being I'm bad and guilt being I've done something bad. And um, and so in, in my mind, it's like, okay, well, like forgiveness. How do you forgive yourself? How do you forgive other people? You know, and to like bring in the greatness thing into this is like, I think all great people in history have done bad things. Like, it's just kind of a part of life and a part of doing things. And um, how do you reconcile that in yourself? And like, how do you figure out, well, why did I do that? You know, was it a necessary thing to do this? Um, and and I also think about like, oh, how do I how do I forgive other people? And my way tends to be, um, I figure out why they did it. Why? I just try to understand. And then if I can understand why that happened with them, it, that took me into family of origin studies for like months, you know, just try to understand the people in my life that I needed to forgive. And, but then, okay, how do I apply that to myself? That's the, that's sort of like, how i would address that and i like how you freed and ben you bring it up in that it has to happen within a relationship it doesn't just happen isolated and alone it's you can't just get rid of guilt just by like thinking about it really hard you know so 
because because a relationship is the only context where you get recognition. I think that is the factor that doesn't exist. I think you're right, Josh, you can't introspect your way through feelings of guilt because no one is there but you. But in the context of a relationship, you have that element of recognition that I feel can be very healing. Um, <clears throat> so let me say a couple of things too. Uh, <clears throat> in, in regards to the frame or the benevolence just kind of of your being, this has been written about, which I think very effectively, that when we have a accepting attitude, non-judgmental, non-critical attitude towards our clients, they identify with us and begin to internalize a sense of greater acceptance without us preaching or saying anything to them. I think it's just it happens over time because they're identifying with us and that becomes part of who they are over time. Secondly, uh, the idea that uh, we can identify a fault and not believe it's all of us, right? And even the fault is maybe based on some injury, that's a distortion, and then begin to view that rather than staying with some kind of sense of perfection that we should never have this and then we beat ourselves up by it and thinking that this is going to absolve us by how much we beat ourselves up rather than forgiving ourselves and and changing whatever might be rudimentary to the fault if it's our own kind of defensiveness if it's our own kind of wanting to turn active passive into active so we mean when we we've dealt with meanness before we're going to be mean before we receive more meanness other than being vulnerable and feeling hurt if we're going to feel hurt and going through that, whatever it might be, is to change that, right? And accept ourselves without beating ourselves up. That's what we want to do with things that we've done, you know, our trespasses, right, inside. But if people can't do that, they're not grieving well. And I think they're still in a state of perfectionism where they think, you know, uh, I should never have this. And if I beat myself up enough, that's the way to fix it, which is another cognitive distortion. So we want to we want to help the clients move past any of that stuff like that, right? Uh, you know, redemption happens. You might say by owning it and by feeling the pain of it, and what you could do differently, could have done differently, could be differently in the future. And really trying to forgive yourself, and and if there's a chance, I mean, maybe you want other people to forgive you. Maybe not. Maybe it's not necessary. Because sometimes they put you in a very awkward situation, or somebody's not even alive anymore, so you can't you can't get forgiveness from them. But anyway, so you have to we have to forgive ourselves. But it does remind me of the uh, the saying that what's the Lord's prayer, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So well, this, yeah, go ahead. I I actually really like what you just said, Doctor Sellers, because as you were saying that i was thinking of like the ideals that we place on ourselves like in in this life there's these expectations that you know of of greatness kind of circling back here right because i think we can be a much better than we sometimes put portray ourselves but i think there's an extent of extremism on both ends where we can literally dig ourselves a hole and say we're worthless and there's there's nothing possible to the, the life of me or we can go all the way up to the top of the hill and go i'm ideal right and like <laughs> and completely miss that it's you're still we're still all fallen broken human beings in some way shape or form yeah however we can continue to grow and become better and the way we do that is by paying attention 
to the things in our life that we've repressed. And like the more I see this with my clients on like covering things in their life that they've experienced that, you know, again, either they masked because they were ashamed of it growing up, or there's a lot of like intense anger due to trauma that they're hiding under the surface that they can't allow themselves to see. Then you start like when they start actually like uncovering this, it's incredible to watch as they start healing and decreasing in intensity and um, just experiencing a, a different version of themselves. I remember a client not too long ago, we've been working together for like two years and, and they look at me and they're like, you know, I am so much better now than I was before. <laughs> like I can look at myself like from, from the beginning where I was going through all this stuff, struggling, um, dealing with like literal racing thoughts could not function. It was like they were completely stuck because they had repressed and refused to talk about a traumatic event in their life. And through the talking about it and evaluation of it and just really having a better understanding of their development and their childhood and, and why the reasons behind these things that happened, they began to experience a complete decrease. They're now connecting with people in their life. They're functioning better and they're living, they're, they're enjoying being with their family versus like where things were before they were completely isolating themselves. So like it is possible, but we have to be brave and courageous to uncover that stuff and like welcome it in. Accept our humanity, which is that we're broken in some ways. We have our faults and it doesn't define us as being bad people, but just on the road to growing and changing and working on ourselves. And the greatness, um, to kind of go back to the beginning, the greatness I'm talking about is the idea that we're, we're serving other people. We're beyond ourselves. We're giving to other people in a way that helps them, that helps humanity, that helps the planet, that helps college. Some sense, you know, when you look at heroes in movies and stuff, when I get overwhelmed with emotion, it's when they've given up their self-servingness. And they're, they're giving themselves to something that's way beyond them. They're even putting their skin at risk or their emotional life at risk for the sake of, of other people and for the for whatever, the planet or their relationships or their family or their community. That's when that's moving to me. And it's, and it's a welling up that happens from deep down. I can feel it, you know, when I move by that. So this is part of it. If, and this is part of Adler's work, too. If we don't find in our in our psyche a place where we want to give, we want to give to something greater than ourselves, this altruism we would call altruistic kind of drive. Yeah. This is part of his work. If we don't find that, we're missing something. We're missing something. And it's because we may have cognitive distortions or we're stuck with our own self kind of worry and, and rumination. But we we're not sort of uh, in a place where we feel that giving is joyful and giving is more than us and it enriches us so that we overcome that duality of self versus others again you know when you get to that place organically you want to start giving more to life if you're still focused if you're in your egoism it's hard to come out of that see so that's a fundamental kind of issue that we're i think we deal with in terms of working with the shadow and transforming the shadow is giving up this egoism uh, towards the, uh, you know, this surrender to the wish to help everyone, you know, and the identification 
with everyone in some strange sense or everything. So that's the unity of consciousness. Anyway, uh, it, we are, this, these concepts are, I think are complex, so they're hard to talk about and not kind of wander a little bit. But anyway, you get what I'm saying? This is part of Adler's work all along. That this is a level of maturity that he hopes his clients would get to or patients would get to. Um, this conversation is making me think of a thought experiment I had. Admittedly, it's a bit eccentric, so please indulge me, everyone. Um, but the thought experiment is as follows. You take an average person and you tell them, imagine that all the things that you've done in life and all the impressions and thoughts that you've had in life are suddenly on public display and people can have an opinion about them. So the question is, what do you think the average person's opinion would be? Now, my hypothesis is that the average person would be mortified about that, and not only for reasons of basic privacy, but because they would have a sense of like, well, there is something, to use your term, Josh, shameful. There is something, Leah, to use your term, that evokes guilt about something I've done and so on and so on. But the strange thing is, barring the, let's say, at most 5% of cases where, okay, yeah, you actually have murdered someone or you've embezzled someone or you've done something that's objectively questionable. The strange thing is, I think most of us are doing okay. Most of us are not terrible people. Most of us are just trying to do that the best we can. And whatever shortcomings we do have, I think are usually able to be explained as someone who's hurting, trying to do the best they can. Um, but I think there is that discrepancy though, where that reality that I just described that applies to 95% of the population is contrasted by the fact that I think the average person, if they consider this thought experiment, would feel mortified, would feel like, no, actually the average person would judge me very harshly and critically. And this leads me to a concept that I'm, I'm starting to put together now, which is what is the gaze that is presumed by people's self-concept? When people think about themselves, Josh, to your point about introspection, we are not just subjects, we are not just islands when we think about ourselves. We always presume, I think, some kind of a social audience when we think about ourselves. It's inherent in human subjectivity. So then the question becomes, what is that particular gaze that you're presuming as you think about yourself? Because I think a healthy gaze to internalize is just the average person who will be understanding of you. Of course, they're not gonna excuse and accept the 5% of things that are object objectively bad, but for the most part, they have an understanding nature. They're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're going to hear you out. Um, but I feel that more and more these days, we have, I'm really going to use the term social media gaze. Um, and I hope you don't think I'm antagonizing social media too much. But I think it is related to this idea I'm getting at, which is I think the average person, when they consider themselves and their self-concept, they're presuming a certain kind of gaze that is, for lack of a better term, viciously critical and viciously judgmental and will break you down to all of your individual constituent parts and find everything wrong with it and ridicule you and judge you. Um, and that's just, I think, part of what I've seen on social media, again, the worst parts of it, not a critique of it in general, but I am noticing that a lot of people kind of presume this gaze and then a lot of their negative self-concept, whether it's shame, whether it's guilt, is coming from a place of having presumed that gaze as opposed to a more kind of healthy gaze. And now that I say it out loud, Maybe what can be healing about the therapeutic relationship is that the therapist or the life coach has that healthy gaze. And they are able in the context of the relationship to actually give and take with someone who has that healthy gaze of, no, I will hear you out. No, I will not mutilate you and cut you down into your specific parts and judge you 
um, I will be uh, open-minded and, and hear you out and consider you. And maybe that's what's so healing, especially in uh, our society today, where there does seem to be that hypercritical gaze um, inaugurated by social media and things related to that. I'll just add on to that, that I have friends with that gaze and I need those friends because they're very grounding for me because I have a weird gaze. And, but, <laughs> um, but it's, it's, uh, you're it's saying the so, friends have the accepting gaze. Yeah. 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 They're just, they're just calm. They're grounded. They like, they're, they're very social people. They're very in the, um, like normal type of thinking, I would say. I'm sure they have, everyone has their eccentricities, but, um, and that it's so, I think that's what makes a good friend is having that gaze. So if you're, you have a person that you're with and they're looking from this like social media gaze, I call it the social media mind. It's just like, it, it does, it, it makes the mind work differently. And like a lot more comparisons, uh, a lot more, and, like, I think it's so useful to keep in mind. I think it was Gurchev that had this like phrase that he would say that if everyone just walked around in their mind, they had an organ that thought everyone's going to die someday. Everyone you interact with, they're going to die. That's going to be something that's just going to exterminate the ego and help with this positive interaction. And I, I, I thought that was a really interesting concept. And for me, the thought is everyone has a dark side. No matter what the person's showing you, everyone has their dark side. And that's um, like everyone has their pain. Everyone has their evils or whatever you want to call it, their vices, you know. And no matter how positive they're presenting, even on social media, like just I have in my mind, every time I see someone on social media, I'm like, this is just half of their life or a quarter of their life. It's not like really what their life is. And just being able to have that in my mind has made me navigate social situations and social media. And I think a very uh, safe and productive way, but that's just me. Okay, let me let me finish up. We're gonna have to stop in a minute, but <clears throat> try to pull some things together. It's important to know that what we talk about as the gaze or what we see as a reflection back to us from our environment, uh, much of it is a projection of ourselves. In other words, as we, if we harbor judgmentalness, contemptuous stuff like that, if we see this stuff coming from outside of us and we take it as gospel or we take it as some sense real, it's because there's some of us, something in us that makes us vulnerable to it, which is our own lower self, our own shadow. Otherwise, we're more resilient. We say, that's them. That's them being them. Sorry they feel that way. It bounces off of us more, you see. But as we are more steeped in our own negativity, what we see from the outside has more traction with us. We give it more weight. And, and actually, it begins to create negative cycles where we get more negative stuff back to us and we have we lose track of the fact that we've induced that somehow we've contributed to that coming our way socially through media whatever it might be just watching television we've induced some of that to come back our way because of what's happening inside of us so the real ultimately what i'm saying is ultimately as we transform our lower self and our shadow 
we become more resilient to what's out there that's negative, and slowly it becomes more and more benevolent. And when it's not, well, yeah, that you shake that off and you say, "Are you all right? I wish you, you know, I wish you didn't feel so bad and have those kind of attitudes. They're not good for you." <laughs> that kind of thing. Okay, so I got to stop. But you know, it was really. It, it, we, I think this is really important. This uh, how we moved into social media because it's such a part of our lives, right? Such a part of our lives. So thanks everybody. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks everybody. By the way, if you want life coaching from any of the people here, uh, you know two four eight seven zero five three seven nine eight or Dr. Franklin Salas, D R F R A N K L I N Salas at Kajabi K A J A bi.com uh and just you can you can find this online okay so thanks everybody and uh take care everybody <laughs> <laughs> <I'll> see ya <laughs>